When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is a crowd podcast. Freddie Mercury stands at his bedroom window and watches his partner Jim work in the garden. He's in his dressing gown, sipping tea from the finest china. He looks like a fading actress from Hollywood's golden era. So frail. A breath of wind could knock him over. But still glamorous. Still proper. Every now and again, Jim downs tools, races upstairs, sticks his head around the bedroom door and tells Freddy he loves him. When Jim gets back to his shovel, Freddy taps on the window, shouts, cooey, and blows a kiss. In the evenings, Freddie and Jim cuddle up on the sofa, watching bad TV and dozing. Jim massages Freddie's head, cats purr on their laps, and slink around them. They're doing a pretty good job of pretending everything's normal. Freddie, Jim, and the cats. But nothing is normal. A couple of weeks later, Freddie releases a statement announcing what most people already know. He's dying of AIDS. The day after that, he's dead. All his life, Freddie Mercury did a pretty good job of not being normal, while telling people that's all he ever wanted to be. Where do you even start with Freddie? the most balls-out rock star there ever was, who remained a mystery to the end, and remains a mystery almost 30 years after his death. Shy. That's what people say. But it's a strange kind of shy that throws parties like Freddie. It's a strange kind of shy that wears its sexuality on its sequined sleeves when people find that sexuality so threatening, disgusting even. Was Freddie a private man like so many people claim? You can't be that private when your lyrics are so gut-wrenchingly personal and your records are bought by hundreds of millions. But maybe Freddie was as private as he could be. He wasn't the first to discover that fame can be a terrible pain, that the biggest, juiciest oysters 
contain the most grit. And he wasn't the last. Privacy is hard to come by when your day job is pulling the strings of adoring fans. A rock and roll dictator. A cult of personality. A mad pop monarch. Dressed in ermine with a crown on top of your head. We might not get to the bottom of Freddie Mercury. Nobody has. And it's likely nobody ever will. But we'll give it a good go. And somewhere near the bottom is the life he tried to bury before he was famous, before he was Freddie. That's where we'll start after this short break. This is an advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Hello, it's Tom Fordyce here. I'm one of the writers on Death of a Rockstar, and I do hope you're enjoying the series. I wanted to tell you about BetterHelp. Now, we all carry around different stresses in life, big and small. A lot of the people I wrote about for this series absolutely did. And as we know, if we keep those stresses bottled up, it can impact us negatively. That's where therapy can be great. Therapy isn't just for people who've experienced major trauma. It can help you understand the way your brain works and why you feel a particular way. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's all online, designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist. And you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Rockstar listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash rockstarpod. That's betterhelp.com slash rockstarpod. Hey, what's up? My name's Lurk, and I'm the host of Lamgoat's Van Flip Podcast. Every week, I have in-depth conversations with bands from all over the scene, big and small. We also like to keep our finger on the pulse and showcase up-and-coming bands on the show as well. So come check out Lamgoat's Van Flip Podcast. This is Death of a Rockstar, a new series from Crowd Network, with new episodes out every Thursday. A friend once said, Freddie Mercury wished... He'd been born at the age of 18 on the streets of swinging London. But he was actually born in Zanzibar, off the east coast of Africa. Freddie's parents were Parsis who followed the Zoroastrian faith. Parsis originally emigrated from Persia to India back in the 7th and 8th centuries. Freddie's dad was born in India and moved to Zanzibar, part of the British Empire back then, to work as a registrar for the British Colonial Office. He met Freddie's mum back in India, brought her to Zanzibar, and that's where Freddie was born in 1946. Except he wasn't called Freddie Mercury back then. He was called Farokh Bolsara. Not that Freddie seemed to care much about any of that stuff, not as much as other people did. Once, after Freddie found fame, a friend said his childhood sounded exotic 
and exciting. Freddie replied, Zanzibar was a filthy place, dear. Subject closed. Freddie was always accused of denying his roots. He was, his critics said, ashamed of being Asian, ashamed of being African, and not particularly interested in being Parsi. He once referred to himself as a prancing Persian popinjay. But that's about it. Those early days are privileged up to a point. The Bulsaras have African servants and an African nanny to look over little Farokh. But when Farokh is eight, he's packed off to an English-style boarding school in India. He sees his parents once in the next seven years. Farokh's a good student, bright enough to win prizes, artistic, a decent sportsman. School is easier that way. But music is Farokh's thing. He sings in the choir, learns piano and forms a band. They're called the Hectics. They play rock and roll, Elvis, Fats Domino, Little Richard. Farokh can hear a song on the radio, memorize it, and play it perfectly on the piano. A handy skill when the shops don't sell records and you can't afford them anyway. He is a shy kid and insecure. His mates call him Bucky because of his teeth. He covers them with his hand when he laughs. But he's a natural showman on stage at school concerts and garden fates. He likes to shock. He plays women in school plays and calls boys darling, but he can make people follow too. One day, he starts doing the twist on a beach. Within seconds, he's surrounded by Muslim girls in burqas twisting with him. Farokh, now usually Freddy, finishes school in Zanzibar before a violent revolution erupts in 1964 and the Bulsara family flees to England. That's right, Freddie Mercury was a refugee. The Bulsara's new home is a semi-detached house in Feltham, West London. It's not quite the swinging streets of Soho and Freddie's not quite 18, but he's not far away. His parents, good middle-class Parsis, want Freddie to get some solid qualifications. Freddie, a good Parsi son, does as he's told, sort of. Instead of accountancy like his dad, Freddie gets a degree in graphic art and design. But even before he's graduated, he's telling people he'll be a star. College friends say he had a sense of destiny immortality even. When he fails his driving test, he tells his mum, it doesn't matter, one day I'll be chauffeur-driven everywhere. And this is all before anyone has heard him sing a note. When Freddie becomes the lead singer of a band called Ibex, people start to get the idea. This shy, buck-toothed kid 
He's got some lungs on him. And there's nothing shy about him on stage. Here's what a bandmate says. The first day he stood in front of a crowd, he had it all going. The marching up and down the stage, the stomping, the posing and prancing of a Persian popinjay. It's as if he's been practicing for that moment all his life. Back then, especially back then, Freddie has a lot of front. <laughs> well, the guts on him. Nobody else had the bottle to sing falsetto, says another old bandmate. Not many men had the bottle to wear satin blouses and crushed velvet trousers either, but Freddie does. He doesn't care what anyone thinks. In 1970, Freddie joins a band called Smile, who soon become Queen. That's Freddie's idea. <laughs> surprise, surprise. And suddenly, Freddie Bolsada is Freddie Mercury, as camp as a Christmas tree, sometimes even looking like one. He calls everyone dear, male or female, that raises eyebrows. He lives with his girlfriend, Mary Austin, but who's he kidding? This is what another friend says. If he hadn't yet come out of the closet, he was certainly looking through the keyhole. They call it gender bending, and it's all the rage, which means Freddie can hide in plain sight. Mark Boland kicked it all off in the 60s, David Bowie ran with it, and by the early 70s, the charts are full of men wearing glitter, satin, high-heeled boots, eyeshadow, and nail polish. Real men, self-appointed ones, call them poofs, but the kids think they're cool. Queen are maybe the geekiest and smartest rock band ever. Roger Taylor, the drummer, has a degree in biology. Brian May, the guitarist, studied physics. John Deacon on bass has a degree in electronics. Queen do the hard yards, gigging relentlessly in suburban pubs, and then it clicks. Their second album, Queen 2, reaches the top 10 in the UK. The single, Seven Seas of Rye, does the same. The album, Sheer Heart Attack, performs even better, despite baffling the critics. Is it hard rock, heavy metal? Some of it. But there's also music hall and ballads even a bit of Caribbean. The BBC played Killer Queen to death, not realising it's about a high-class prostitute. It's not like Freddie's holding much back, it's just people aren't looking closely enough. He tells a journalist from the music paper NME that he's gay as a daffodil. When she asked Freddie if he's bent, that was apparently acceptable in those days, Freddie replies, I've had my share of schoolboy pranks. He doesn't elaborate, he doesn't really need to. If people thought Sheer Heart Attack was different, Queen's next album blows their minds. As well as hard rock, ballads and music hall, A Night at the Opera has got folk and jazz on it. There are harps, double basses and ukuleles. One song goes on for eight minutes. Then there's Bohemian Rhapsody which is about five different musical genres in one song. Bohemian Rhapsody is recorded in six different studios. Vocals in one studio, 
guitar parts in another studio and so on. Freddy flits between them like a plate spinner or some mad scientist except in a blouse instead of a white coat. Not even Freddy's bandmates have a clue what it'll turn out like. They probably expected it to have a chorus. It doesn't. They probably don't expect it to have an operatic section. It does. And people love it. Freddie had set out to create the greatest rock song of all time. And he might just have pulled it off. Bohemian Rhapsody is number one in the singles chart for nine weeks in 1975. One DJ plays it 36 times in one day. Freddie said Queen was going to be the biggest rock band in the world. And now they are. Freddie said he was going to be a star. And now he is. There can't have been a more miraculous transformation in the history of pop music, maybe in all of popular entertainment, from a refugee fleeing mysterious Zanzibar to the most flamboyant pop star on the planet in 10 years. Bowie's got nothing on Freddie. As a live performer, Freddie is untouchable. Strutting, preening, shocking, sassy, teasing, uproarious. And he somehow manages to pull it off with a glint in his eye. In front of 120,000 fans in Sao Paulo, Freddie wears a black wig and a pink knitted tank top with a pair of fake breasts underneath, which he occasionally flashes. In front of 300,000 fans in Buenos Aires, Freddie wears a pair of denim hot pants and a black leather sailor's cap and nothing else, besides a sweatband. How could we possibly forget the sweatband? The South American tour in 1981 is where Freddie perfects his call and response technique. He could sing anything he likes and they'll sing it back to him. The authorities worry Freddie might start a riot. He just has to sing the right words and they'll tear the place up. There's a scary thing. Freddie doesn't really know how he does it. Depending on the night, I just do what I want, he says. Imagine that. People think you're a better live performer than Mick Jagger. They think you're better than Roger Daltrey, Robert Plant, and it's all off the top of your head. Bowie knows a thing or two about performing. Here's what he says. Freddie took it further than the rest, over the edge, and of course, I always admired a man in tights. So what about that shyness? How can he be when he's such a gigantic show-off? Well, pretty much everyone says he is. Away from the limelight. Bandmates, friends and family. Freddie is pop music's Clark Kent, an introvert in private 
a superhero when he walks on stage. Superman's job is saving lives. Freddy's job is bringing joy to the masses. And is Freddy really keeping secrets anyway? Is he really that mysterious? Looking back, the question seems absurd. True, he didn't like talking about his sexuality in public, but he couldn't have made it much clearer. He splits up with Mary Austin in 1976, and from the early 80s, when he adopts the clone look, that short hair, moustache, stonewashed 501s, white vest, leather biker jacket, Freddy is gayness personified. He's shouting it from the rooftops. He's practically screaming it. It's just that back then, people don't notice or pretend not to. Maybe Freddy wears it on his sleeve so people don't pry. It's an unusual logic, but it makes some sense. Back in the 80s, admitting you're gay isn't great for business. And despite the pantomime, Freddy is ruthlessly ambitious. I like having fun, he says, but I take it very seriously. I want Queen to be the number one group, not the number two. In entertainment circles, Freddy's sexuality is a given. He throws some of the most debauched parties since the last days of Rome. The most famous takes place in New Orleans in 1978 to celebrate the launch of Queen's album, Jazz. 500 guests, budget unknown. Freddie declares, fuck the cost, darlings, let's live a little. It comes to be known as Saturday Night in Sodom. There are lobsters, oysters and caviar and lines of cocaine as thick and as long as a baby's arm. There are contortionists, fire eaters, transsexual strippers, and a man who bites the heads off chickens. Drinks are served by naked waiters and waitresses with tips placed where you wouldn't usually place them. Oh, and there are models wrestling in a bath of uncooked liver. Large women smoke cigarettes from unusual orifices. If you visit the toilet, you can be orally pleasured by prostitutes. As for that story about dwarves wandering around with trays of cocaine on their heads, it never happens. Here's what a queen roadie says. That's nonsense. There were dwarves there, but they were hidden under plates of cold meats. Freddie also throws himself into New York's early 80s gay scene. Having done whatever he wanted for so long and got away with it, he isn't going to stop now. That means a lot of drugs and a lot of sex with a lot of different men. When AIDS starts killing people in the gay community, a friend asks Freddie if he's changed his ways. The reply... Darling, my attitude is, I'm doing everything with everybody. As always, Freddie knows best. But, as the same friend put it, Freddie's sexual athleticism didn't translate into domestic bliss. 
I'm so powerful on stage that I seem to have created a monster. That's what Freddie says. When I'm performing, I'm an extrovert, yet inside I'm a completely different man. All I want is a loving, caring person and to have a normal relationship. But they're all in love with my stardom. Again, it's not like Freddie keeps his loneliness under his leather cap. When he's on tour, he phones his cats. He tells journalists the only friend he has in the world is Mary Austin. Then there are the lyrics, like for his song Living On My Own, Sometimes I feel I'm gonna break down and cry. So lonely, nowhere to go. Nothing to do with my time. Living on my own. And so we're about to meet Jim. But after this break. In 1985, Freddie meets an Irishman called Jim Hutton. When Freddie offers to buy him a drink, Jim declines. He doesn't even know who Freddie is. And that suits Freddie down to the ground. Freddie moves Jim into his mansion in Kensington, where they slip into the quiet life. This is how Jim remembers it. I'd get home from work and we'd lie together on the sofa. He'd massage my feet and ask about my day. Most Saturday evenings, we'd cuddle up and watch television. Some nights, we'd be in bed by 10. Freddie keeps Jim a secret. At one after-show party, he has Mary Austin on his arm instead, while Jim follows a few paces behind. When Freddie tells Jim it's the way it has to be, Jim understands. But Freddie also tells a journalist, for the first time in my life, I found contentment within myself. Jim's first ever music show is Live Aid, where he finally learns what all the fuss is about. In a dressing room before Queen Go On, a journalist lists some of the other acts. Freddie replies, hmm, we'll have to see what we're going to do about this. The next a vodka, runs out the door and takes Wembley Stadium over. U2, Dire Straits, The Who, Bowie, all blown out of the water. Not just overshadowed, but rendered almost invisible to history. It's an appearance that crystallizes Freddie in the mind's eye. White vest, white trainers, stonewashed jeans, nothing flamboyant about that, but added to the pose against a sea of 80,000 people, you can never forget it. Legs spread, arm raised, fist clenched. Turn up the voice, that soaring voice coming at you like great crested waves, and you've got frightening power. When Freddie skips off the stage, Elton John screeches at him. You fucker. Queen had been creaking, probably coming to a natural end. There were the usual artistic differences. The video for I Want To Break Free, which had Freddie doing the hoovering in drag, went down badly with American fans. 
Then there were the gigs in apartheid South Africa, which made them look like money grabbers, which is what they were. But now, suddenly Queen are hip again. The greatest band on earth, unmissable. In 1986, they released their 12th studio album, A Kind of Magic. The critics hate it. They never did get Queen. They can't pin them down. One minute they're doing opera, the next they're doing rockabilly, the next they're doing Dixieland jazz. Now they've gone full on plastic. I don't give a shit what people think, says Freddie. I do what I want. A kind of magic sells millions and stays in the UK album chart for 63 weeks. Over a million fans come to Queen's Magic Tour across 26 states in 12 countries, yet every single one of them thinks Freddie is singing just for them. Whether they're right up the front or watching through binoculars, when you've got We Will Rock You and We Are The Champions up your sleeve for the encore and Freddie at his bombastic best, you can't really go wrong. On the 9th of August 1986, the band played to 120,000 people at Nebworth. The gig ends with the national anthem and Freddie draped in a robe, holding a crown aloft. It's the last time he appears on stage with Queen. Two months later, the Sun newspaper reports Freddie has been tested for HIV at a London clinic. Freddie's response, do I look like I'm dying of AIDS? Truth is, he is. And maybe has been since the early 80s when he started showing symptoms. Six months after that, in April 87, Freddie's diagnosed. He tells Jim he can leave. Jim says, but I love you. They never speak of it again. After one last birthday bash in Ibiza, Freddie starts cramming stuff in. I've got things I must do, he tells the press. He's always been a lover of the more refined arts. He once performed with the Royal Ballet singing Bohemian Rhapsody while hanging upside down. And now he records an album of duets with Spanish soprano Montserrat Caballé. It shouldn't work, but it does. I'd like to see if any other rock and roll stars could get away with it, says Freddie. Journalists and photographers stalk him so they can report on how ill he looks. And he carries on working. He says, I'll keep going until I fucking drop. Queen head to Switzerland to record one last album. Freddie can barely stand, but says to Brian May, keep writing me stuff and I will sing it. May thinks the song, The Show Must Go On, might be too much for Freddie. But Freddie necks his vodka, marches into the studio, and kills it. Album recorded, Freddie retreats to his mansion in London. Outside the press, inside Freddie and Jim. There's no party when Freddie turns 45 in September 1991. It's just Freddie... Jim, a few close friends, and the cats. 
All Freddie wants now is privacy and comfort. He obviously doesn't have long left. He's wasting away, gaunt, almost skeletal, sleeping mostly. He listens, but he doesn't say much. One day, Jim is doing some digging in the garden. When he looks up at the bedroom window, Freddy isn't there. That's when he knows the gig is up. On the evening of the 24th of November, Freddy dies. Here's a quote from Jim. One minute he had a sad little face, the next he was a picture of ecstasy. Jim stops the flywheel on the carriage clock at 12 minutes past seven. He never starts it again. 24 hours earlier, Freddie's management team released a statement finally confirming he had AIDS. So instead of reading about Freddie's greatness as an entertainer, his gentle nature, his kindness, the public are reading stories about how Freddie had it coming that he was promiscuous, decadent, brought that agonizing end on himself. His bandmates appear on TV to stick up for their pal. And when people see the video for These Are The Days Of Our Lives, with Freddie looking frail but defiant, there's an outpouring of sympathy. God love Freddie. He was killing it to the very end, not giving a shit what people think, like he promised. Freddie always called his music disposable, to be used and tossed aside like a tissue. He got that wrong. He's as big as he's ever been. Musicals, books, documentaries, movies, people can't get enough of him. But he's arguably more controversial now than when he was doing the hoovering in high heels and stockings. People have accused him of denying his roots, of being a self-loathing homosexual, of not doing his bit to dispel the stigma of AIDS. People tend to think they're kinder nowadays. What do you think? Freddie became Freddie Mercury because it's what he had to be. When rock stars weren't Asian or Zoroastrian and they certainly didn't come from Zanzibar, and who can blame Freddie for slipping into a new identity when it was still common for people like him to be racially abused in the street? As for Freddie's sexuality, if you couldn't work that out, more fool you. Yes, there was evidence of shame. He even said the only person he ever wanted to marry was Mary Austin. But blame society for that, not Freddie. Or blame the religion of his parents, which regarded homosexuality with disgust. Maybe people need to calm down a bit, just rejoice that the persona Freddie created was so unique. Celebrate the fact that a refugee from some mysterious land managed to achieve such mind-blowing success in England. Look at it another way, Freddie never denied anything. The whole time he was screaming at us, arm raised, fist clenched. This is what I am. Is it not enough?
This episode was written by Ben Durs and performed by me, Elroy Spoonface Powell, Spoon the Voice Guy. It was edited by Phil Brown. For research, we read newspaper articles from The Times, The Telegraph, The Guardian, The Evening Standard, The Sun, and The LA Times. We also read archived articles from The NME, Rolling Stones, Melody Maker, Louder Sound, Record Collector, and The Indian Website Scroll. On top of all that, we listened to the BBC Radio 4 documentary, The Mysterious Mr. Mercury, and watched the excellent BBC 4 documentary, The Great Pretender. The music we used is from BMG Production Music. But if you want three Queen tracks to listen to right now, go for Bohemian Rhapsody, obviously, but try and picture Freddie, the mad scientist, working out of six different studios. Then stick on These Are The Days Of Our Lives and the show must go on, just for the poignancy. And if you'd rather listen to another podcast, you could go for Whitney Houston or George Michael, but why not try our episode about Keith Flint from The Prodigy? It's one of our best ones. If you like what we do, tell a friend, and if you use the Apple Podcast app, leave us a nice review. It would mean a lot to us. Thank you for listening. Crowd Network. A place where you belong. What's up, everybody? I am Finn McKenty, host of the Punk Rock NBA podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. My podcast is all about doing what you love for a living, and every week I sit down and talk to people who have done exactly that. For example, musicians like Tommy from Between the Buried Me, Matt from Periphery, Lil Lotus and Shinigami, among many others, photographers, artists, designers, YouTubers like Glenn Fricker and Sarah Dietschy, and I unpack exactly how they got to where they are today with the goal of helping you do the same. So if that sounds cool, you can listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com, and I'll see you there. Hey, this is Steve Choi, host of the Musicians Guild podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Within the four walls of the Musicians Guild, we'll be discussing the habits, idiosyncrasies, experiences, and general psychology of my friends and peers, all involved with music in various capacities. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey there, I'm Johnny Christ from Avenged Sevenfold, and I've got a podcast called Drinks with Johnny you're going to want to check out. I sit down with a bunch of different people from all different walks of life, from professional wrestlers to actors, comedians, fighters, musicians, everything in between. I'm just looking to make some friends and have a good time doing it. So if that sounds like something you're into, go check out Drinks with Johnny, streaming everywhere now.